breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. Back to Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. This is the place where you find a little update, if you will, on the progress in reform within the Muslim community, the progress on a number of fronts uh, relevant to where we are in the rest of the political dynamic, yes, and the religious dynamic, social, cultural dynamic. A quarter of the world's population is Muslim, and I, as an American Muslim, patriotic American, feel that this is a place that we can start to have a conversation. You know, as the elections finish this week, and there's still, like almost everything this year, not getting done expeditiously, but rather a slow walk to the end. And regardless of which side of the equation you're on, there's no doubt that it's just another example this year of things that just won't finish. From COVID to the lockdowns to elections, it just won't finish. But what we can do on this program is sort of begin to shed some light on things that the, especially the mainstream media will not cover, will not fill in the dots and color inside or outside the lines to give you a little sense, a little flavor of what the reality is. A lot to cover this week, but first I have to tell you, as somebody who served on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, International Religious Freedom, for four years and was termed out in 2016, I had the pleasure, the honor of talking to, of having a few interactions with Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and on November 7th, he passed. He was a giant, a giant in the religious freedom community and especially in the Jewish community as a moral compass, a guide for their communities. And my condolences to the Jewish communities across the world that Lord Rabbi Sachs served and may his memory be a blessing. If you haven't heard of Rabbi Sachs, pick up one of his books, Always a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of information about the commonalities, the differences, the realities of the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. Just if you have a moment, take a look at all of the wealth of praise and blessings that the world is, is, is showering on he and his family in his passing. He was a giant. I never... Uh, uh, had the opportunity to sit with him at length. I wish I had, but I can tell you that uh, if our faith communities had more leaders like him, especially we in the Muslim community, if we had leaders like him who were not only ecumenical, but rather who were able to see the need for modernity, the value of universal human rights, the equality of all, the importance to relish diversity of ideas and especially freedom of thought, freedom of practice, freedom of faith and worship. Um, from the time he was recognized, recognized as Lord in London to all the things he did as an ambassador for Judaism, he will be remembered. And I had to take a moment to recognize and give our condolences to all in his communities. This week, it appears that uh, most of the writing on the wall, and as has been declared by the media, yet to be certified, though, at the time I recorded this, 
Um, President-elect Biden will be the next, the 46th president of the United States. And uh, as that becomes certified, I congratulate uh, President-elect Biden on his victory. And uh, though I did not vote for him, uh, I can tell you that uh, it is time, yes, and both sides of all of the electoral communities I know that I know that I've talked to all hope that we can come together in unity. This is not just a, a wish from one side and the winning or the losing side. We've always wished this from each administration, so this is not new. And many of us are actually growing a little tired of some of the patronization of sort of the results of this. But right now, what I want to focus on is what do we have to expect? What can we expect for the issues that we talk about here the most? on reform of this when it comes to a Biden administration. How did the Muslim community vote? There's some su surprises out there that I want to talk to you about. And what are some of the commentaries that are being made? And then I'm going to do a little update about France, what's going on over there. And also, Brother Tariq Ramadan, one of the leading icons of the Islamic and especially the Islamist community, the grandson of the founding, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, who became a European icon, is on trial for a number of rapes and what has he been testifying to. So first, when it comes to the Muslim community and who they voted for, so important to look at this. And I think one of the numbers that jumps out, you know, in the past, for example, the last two elections in the Obama administration, Obama garnered somewhere between, I believe it was somewhere between 80 to 85 percent of the Muslim vote. And we've talked about that, and I can get into exactly what that dynamic is. President Bush in 2000 had 60 percent of the Muslim vote, and then in 2004 dropped it down to 30 percent. And again, talk about foreign policy, talk about uh, all of the dynamics of the Islamists' minority. I say minority, we know that the Islamists are a minority, but a significant plurality, 30-35% of the American Muslim population is likely Islamist. Not really been studied specifically, but that number seems to correlate to what we've seen across the Middle East and in most Muslim-majority countries when the Islamists actually have a political party first go around, they usually get somewhere between 30 to 40% of the vote. I think the United States would probably be less if they had the courage to have their own party, but they don't. They camouflage themselves as civilizational jihadists pretending to be Democrats, pretending to be whatever it might be that gets them political expediency. And in the last election, I have to look up the numbers specifically, but it, uh, in the uh, Trump versus Clinton election of 2016, Hillary garnered somewhere between, I think, again, 80 to 90% of the Muslim vote. Probably closer to 90%. Now, let's put in context what's been going on the last four years as the Islamists and as the far left and their red-green axis has, has accentuated the identity politics, demonizing all, not only President Trump, but demonizing 
everybody in the Trump administration as being anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, as, as having a Muslim ban, which I've addressed many times in this program. That six countries that are not to be trusted on their vetting, that are tyrannies from Syria to Iran, Somalia and elsewhere, are not necessarily in any way, let alone a Muslim ban, but rather a protection against possible threats that might come that might happen to be Muslim or otherwise. But the bottom line is, is how did they vote? For the, how did the American Muslim population vote this time? Well, there's two really important things that we can glean. Number one, for the Muslim community, 35% voted for President Trump. 65% voted for Vice President Biden. 35, 65, a huge jump, a huge jump. We're going to talk about that, but really a number that's even more depictive of, of sort of dispelling almost every trope that came from the far left in the past few years is the fact that the percent of American Jews that voted for President Trump was 30%. Now, that's actually demographically higher than the last numbers, I believe, that have voted for president uh, for a Republican candidate uh, in a number of years. And I'm not going to even touch on the internal dynamics of all of that and the historical majority of the American jury that have been affiliated with the Democratic Party. But my question to American Muslims and those analyzing the American Muslim population is, if... You know, and I, and I wonder, and, and I tweeted about the fact that what's the next imam explain going to be? What's the explanation from the imams going to be about how it is that more Muslims voted for President Trump than Jews, and yet the conspiratorial, the jihadi jujitsu about President Trump is that somehow that alliance, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem, the uh, accords all of the the positions that President Trump has taken against Iran, the narrative of Islamophobia and the Ilhan Omar narrative, the AOC even narrative and the Rashida Tlaib narrative are that President Trump is one and the same as Prime Minister Netanyahu is part of that cabal, that uh, uh, Illuminati and all the other conspiracy theories that the nutcases on the far left push. Far be it forever, many of us on the right to actually believe ideologically that friendship with the secular liberal democracy of Israel is in America's interests, is the right thing to do, and is actually pro-Muslim. Far be it for us to actually believe these as ideas, but rather a part of a conspiracy. So if there is a conspiracy, how is it that all of a sudden most Muslims, more Muslims voted for President Trump than Jews did? Shows you that the conspiracy theorists are not only propagandists, but what happened? So now let's drill down deeper, set aside the conspiracy theorists. Let's say... How is it that now almost three times as many Muslims voted in America for President Trump than four years ago? 
and even far more than for Romney versus Obama. How is that? When in fact, candidate Romney probably did a lot more to reach out to the American Muslim community as a faith community than President Trump did. Well, I think there's a couple things to look at. Number one, when it comes to the Arab street, the Muslim street, if you will, the reality is, is that they were wincing from eight years of Obama's fealty to every tyrant in the Middle East, especially the Khomeinist. Obama administration and the left's fealty to the genocide in Syria, the inability to stand for American values. That ultimately, they had had enough of that. And they didn't know what to expect from President Trump in 2016, so they probably was a little less apt to flip and change their previous voting habits. But now after four years, they see the Iran deal done. They see sanctions helping those in the streets of Iran. They see the sanctions beginning to penalize the true tyrants in the Middle East, beginning to set the red line in which, yes, it was a, a, a pinprick, but bottom line is, is Assad's use of chemical weapons pretty much decreased to almost nil after President Trump in April 2018, I believe, responded to the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime with six different strikes. And then the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem did very little. If anything, Muslims supported that. And then the Abraham Accords began to awaken an era in which you had a president that said, you know what, there is no military solution to these problems, but rather we're going to rebuild alliances that we had. And now you're starting to see changes of opening of societies, especially what we see in the Emirates, which I'm going to talk to you about a little bit in a sec. But those changes are happening because of public pressure and and because of the closening of the gap between the West and a lot of these Arab countries that are now closer to Israel and are beginning to loosen rules. So I think it is not far from the American Muslim population to begin to look at that and say, hey, regardless of what you might think about, say what you will about character or other things, the bottom line is results. And the Arab street, the Muslim street, whatever you want to call it, is all about results. And... I have to tell you, when it comes to getting respect, often in tribal communities, whatever those might be, and again, tribalism is not just a Middle East function. We see that in politics in America or elsewhere. But the bottom line is when it comes to some of that tribalism, that respect is earned through people who are simply straight up and say what they think and do what they say and say what they mean. So President Trump, for as gruff and as as painful as his Twitter account might have been in comments, yielded some results. Biden represented Obama. Biden represented a, a kickback that now they're worried, likely, what's going to happen with the sanctions coming off and the Iran deal maybe being resurrected with a yo-yo effect. I think that's why you see the 35%. So this is an important conversation that nobody's having. That data I gave you, by the way, 
came from NPR, not any right-of-center source. So it might even be more than that, actually. And a lot of that data has been analyzed. Now, again, it might be more than that because we saw how anti-Trump polling data was. I mean, if there's anything we learned, regardless of what side of the equation you're on, is that the campaign polling data pushed by mainstream and most media was not only malpractice, but completely useless. Completely useless. Now, we can get into the the, the nitty-gritty of state to state, but bottom line is... Biden was ahead anywhere from 8 to 20 points in various polls across the country. And in some states, he lost those. They thought he was going to win Georgia, Florida, and elsewhere, and was completely off by swings of 10 to 15 points to the pre-election day polls. And the anatomy and pathology of why that happened, I will leave to experts who are not part of the media, by the way, because they have been now complete. That, That industry is probably done put a fork in it put a nail on it six feet under polars are done now after the fact once results are done things like what i just talked to you about you may need to take with a grain of salt obviously but there's still something to be learned there you look at trends same pollsters looking at percent muslims that voted i think there's some very valuable information to be had there now further the LA Times the LA Times had a discussion yesterday about well what do muslim voters expect from president elect joe biden and they interviewed a, a sarah dean and she noted that she put together a muslim voter guide and was helped by this mpac and uh, engage rather, not impact. Engage again. I've talked to you about that. They're an action political action committee that is basically the Muslim Brotherhood party. So again, the mainstream media is using Muslim Brotherhood activists to define the Muslim community. And their definition is that they don't want to just have a seat at the table. They want to be part of the central fabric. That's fine, but. Where are the voices of reform in this piece, L.A. Times? Who is the reporter here? The reporter on this with the L.A. Times was Sarah Parvini. But again, the quotes in here are just, I mean, enough with this stuff. And we're going to get more of it now, I know, as as uh, we see the, the cheering in the streets and, and uh, otherwise from the left. And... This jet pack, which is, again, a Muslim Brotherhood pack, said Muslim voters have watched as President Trump campaigned, declaring that Islam hates us and calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. That's not what he said. He did say Islam hates us, which I criticized here on this program. Uh, from its, <laughs> its Islamism hates us, yes, which is a major, major movement globally, but not Islam. And he can't anthropomorphize Islam. But the left will continue to use that. But the total complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States? Come on. And then again, they started to take credit for 
turnout and et cetera. And one of the data that I saw put out this week was that 60% of American Muslims did not vote, which tells you that some of the Islamists, especially the Salafists, which are fundamentalists, do not believe in electoral democracy and the voting of the citizenry. Now, is that fear-mongering? Yasser Qadi, the head of, one of the leading scholars at the Maghrib Institute that I've talked about before, has talked about the evils of democracy and voting. Look it up. And yet he was a darling of the uh, interviewed by the New York Times about how he pushes back. He's a Salafist, but he pushes back against jihadi, Salafi jihadism of Al-Qaeda. And he's so necessary. Well, he's against democracy. He denies it. But look at his writings. I'd love to debate him. The guy blocked me on Twitter when I criticized him. As far as I'm concerned, he's part of the insurgency of the Salafis. But again, some of the... Now, I don't think the 60%, I think one of the things that the 35% vote for Trump tells you is that you add that the chance of an Islamist voting for Trump is almost zero. Okay, so 35% of the American Muslim population is not Islamist. At least that, that's a starting point. Now you look at the Biden vote. Let's say half of those are Islamists, maybe half or more. So that should push you into the over 50% that are not Islamists. And again, telling you that 30 to 40% of the American Muslim population is likely Islamist and the rest are not. Now, most of the ones that didn't vote are either fundamentalists that are Salafists, fundamentalists, or they're just unengaged from the political system. And this is why what we're doing in the reform movement needs to engage American Muslims, to give them a voice of diversity, and to say that the imams and the Islamists and the Brotherhood don't speak for us, don't speak for our community as a whole. We are a diverse community, and that's important, I think, we're going to hear more about that as likely a president-elect Biden will start to, I'm sure, name some Muslims to some influential positions. And I will bet you, if you look at some of the advisors that Bernie had that then went over to Biden from Shakir and others, these are notorious Islamists. Some of them are pretty slick and know how to dispel fear that they're Islamists. But the bottom line is, is, they empower, they engage, and they echo the Islamist mantras about American generalizations, about American bigotry, about conspiracy theories, about their anti-Zionism and otherwise. So it'll be an interesting four years as President Biden is sworn in when that happens. We'll see. A lot will be talked about his cabinet. And make no mistake, not only is the threat, the far left extremism of the socialism and a lot of the enlargement of entitlement programs and identity politics, but also this red-green axis, the alignment of the Islamist with the far left. What will happen in foreign policy? What will a President Biden do with Iran? Will he ratchet back the Iran deal and begin to hand back cash and give them economic openness to give them more freedom to wreak havoc 
and arm themselves and arm others around them from Assad to the Houthis in Yemen to other threats against our allies. We'll see. But listen, if you believe, if you believe that, you know, one of the things when I talked to you just now about Muslim vote, again, President Trump campaigned and stuck to his guns about the military not being a solution. Now, obviously, a lot of the American Muslim population did not want American troops over there. They wanted them to figure it out on their own and and not have regime change ideas. And I think, ultimately, I've come around to that, too. I was pretty much a, a, a advocate for what was, I think, pejoratively called neoconservatism. We can go down that topic again if you want, but the bottom line is is we need to stand for ideals that are American, but we don't need to do that militarily, but simply through the strength of the Billy Pulpit of the White House, our State Department, and on. And then we need to, to, to make sure that we're on the ground and have the intelligence to knock out threats over there before it comes over here. As France is dealing with now, one of the main problems they have is they did not deal with the threats over there before it came over there. And now with 11-12% of their population being Muslim, they're starting to have a cultural civil war, if you will, that's just now beginning to start and they're pushing back on and it is going to be difficult. And Muslims are a much smaller percent of the population here, barely 1%. But American ideals of liberal democracy and religious freedom, I think, can set the tone of how to deal with political Islam. Treaty Parsi, the Iranian apologist for the Khomeinists that used to be very closely identified, and I think running or some part of the uh, the National Iranian American Council, the group that I've always felt should be FARA, registered as Foreign Agent Registration Act, because of how closely affiliated they are with with the Khomeinists and others. He now opened in this sort of weird Soros Coke seed money organization called the Quincy Institute. And he said on Twitter this week, he said, your daily reminder that the Abraham Accord was an arms deal that will flush the Middle East with more weapons and move it further away from true peace. The UAE and Saudi Arabia now want the Israeli Iron Dome missile defense system. Seriously? So now the Abraham Accords is not about what the clerics and the imams that I told you is so important about how they've reformed the ideas and beginning to actually talk about recognizing Israel as, as not only as a state, but Zionism as an idea they can believe in. theologically. But Parsi, an apologist for Iran, will stop at nothing to criticize. He called the accord, the Abraham Accords, an arms deal. It's not what it was. And, oh, was he ever calling the handing of cash of $150 billion to Iran, their release of arms to Syria with a genocide against the Sunnis 
and Hezbollah's action. Find, see if you can find Trita Parsi's work against Hezbollah. You won't find anything. See if you can find Trita Parsi's work against Khomeinist aggression in Yemen or elsewhere across the planet. You won't find it. So a lot of these operatives in the United States that don't believe in the American experiment, but rather believe in helping their tyrants that they belong to, whether it's the Muslim Brotherhood on the Sunni side or the National Iranian American Council. And by the way, John Quincy Adams called and he wants his name back. Why the Quincy Institute, you know, they, they thought they, they called themselves that saying that non-interventionism was John Quincy Adams' sort of position in foreign policy, but there's been a lot of good pieces written that they actually misunderstood what his positions were. And gosh, an Iranian theocrat apologist running that is absolutely absurd. And I can't believe the Koch brothers. I can believe Soros is tied into that, but the Koch brothers, how that fits libertarianism, I understand non-interventionism, but are they that stupid that they don't understand Parsi's work? with facilitating tyrants from Tehran, from Hezbollah and otherwise? That's, that's, I, can't, I can't believe those who believe in liberty and freedom for every individual across the planet, especially here in America, would tie into that. Now, and in Europe, more fallout from radical Islamists and recent attacks. Police in Germany on Friday raided the homes and businesses of four men, according to the AP, linked to the Islamic State sympathizer who carried out a deadly shooting in the Austrian capital of Vienna earlier this week. And in Austria, they announced the temporary removal of several officials over errors that had been made because the two men had been visited. They were known wolves. Germany's anti-terrorism unit had begun to try to figure out exactly what connections they had made. Four people were killed in the attack in Vienna, and the gunman also died. Twenty others, including a police officer, were wounded. German federal prosecutors said that two of the men whose premises were searched were believed to have met the attacker in Vienna this summer. A third man had contact with him online, while the fourth had no direct contact to the attacker but was in touch with people who knew him. Authorities in Austria have identified the attacker as 20-year-old Kuchtim Fridzulai, a dual national of Austria and North Macedonia who had a previous conviction for trying to join ISIS in Syria and had been given early release in December. Early release in December. Another known wolf, ladies and gentlemen. So they had eight in custody. Authorities in neighboring Switzerland also took two people into custody. Austrian authorities announced that they've ordered the closure of two mosques in Vienna that were frequented by the attackers. Seventy police were involved in shutting down the two mosques before this past weekend. Susan Robb, Austria's Minister for Integration, said the mosques were deemed to have provided what she described as a breeding ground for dangerous ideology. I want to emphasize that it's not a fight against Muslims in Austria. We're all fighting together, she said, because Muslims in Austria are also among those who are particularly threatened by political Islam and radicalism. They're talking about it, ladies and gentlemen, political Islam and radicalism. 
Now, I'm not going to weigh in on the shutting of those two mosques. Certainly, as an American, religious freedom is our first liberty. I've stood against the shuttering of mosques in this country numbers of times, and you can look at my record on that. But again, if that mosque has weapons in it, if that mosque is an operation that is no longer a mosque, but simply a place of war, then it does not deserve protections as a place of worship because it's a place of war. But if they're radical, if they're not calling for violence explicitly, but if they're radicalizing individuals, that's different. You can't defeat a war in which the imams and others are radicalizing by shutting down their places. I had a piece I wrote many years ago about Tajikistan, and they shut down all the Wahhabi Salafi mosques. Tyrannies can do that. Tajikistan is a dictatorship. And the method to control radical Islam is not to shut it down. Chechnya is a prime example. Russia has radicalized that Muslim population by basically treating them in an inhuman way. That does not mean that creates the ideas. No, it's a synergistic thing, as we saw with Assad in Syria. ISIS didn't exist before 2013. The revolution started, yes, with Islamists, but also with those who were secular, liberal, and otherwise that wanted freedom from the tyranny of the Assad Ba'athists and the Alawites that were controlling the Ba'athists. The sectarian battle raged, and it wasn't about it wasn't about uh, simply Syrian nationalism or about freedom. It became about Islamism, but it became as Esed wanted it as he radicalized them in the cauldron that brewed ISIS, as I've talked about before. We see now in Paris that the teacher's slang, I've talked to you about Samuel Paty, and as the Wall Street Journal talked this week, it became an unsettling civics lesson in France's schools. Because schools across France launched a campaign this week to use the killing by the radical ISIS operative, the terrorist, to reinforce core values of the French Republic, of freedom of expression to the country's strict separation of religion and state. And the Wall Street Journal report talks about how even a five-year-old came home with a chilling account about the beheading of Mr. Patey. The Chechen Islamist beheaded the teacher because he had the temerity to teach about what happened five years earlier in 2015 in the showing of the, Pro- of the Prophet Muhammad's cartoons that the Charlie Hebdo magazine published. The children were told to draw a picture showing what they felt, and Patey paid for it initially with threats, initially with needing security, and then with his death. The boy in this story at the Wall Street Journal said a bad man had cut the head off a teacher who died. He told his mom and his teacher. The French have identified classrooms as the front line in the fight against what the government and Macron calls Islamic separatism. And you know, as much as I've been at times critical of Macron's back and forth sort of playing both sides, 
and their effectuation of some of the security apparatus and who they've been using has not been ideal. We have begun because of this language that's being used, the language talking about Islamism, about political Islam being the problem, about separatism, about the lack of identity with French culture, with French society and legalisms, and the over-identification with Sharia and Islamic State theocracy. We've started to see some growth there, but it's not going to be easy. As I've said, it's like treating cancer. Elementary school students across France listened to their teachers pay tribute to the slain history teacher Samuel Paty last month. Macron published a four-page text on Snapchat, Instagram, and other social media to explain to students why they were having these debates. Being French is not just about living in France, he wrote. It's also about rights and duties. And the authorities began to tailor the message to different age groups. Respecting teacher, freedom of expressions, and otherwise respecting the schools. And talking about their emotions. This is what's happening. And he said... Our role is to send kids home with the message that the danger isn't in the cartoons, but in restricting freedom of expression far more so. We must teach these kids the kinds of delicate questions we don't do it. If we don't do it, others will tell them what they should think, but we must do it lightly. And they were told to talk about the facts of Patey's death. So this is an important struggle. Now, some of the French Muslims are worried about the atmosphere and the conflicts that could happen as they discuss these things. Imagine the debate we'd be having in the United States if public education began talking about these things. But no, public education in the United States, it's okay to sort of dismiss 9-11, to dismiss some of the things that happened because we don't want to offend the Muslim population. What about the Muslims that really feel it's offensive not to say that we are having a battle within Islam, as my book talks about a battle for the soul of Islam, against the Islamists. We are not children. We are adults. We can deal with this. We must deal with it. The West dealt with it when it fought against theocracy, and now we're trying to deal with it. Now, certainly you're hearing stories of some of the population that says, oh, one lady said, my kids normally love school, but now they're asking so many questions about death. My six-year-old son said to me, Mom, when will I die? I felt my stomach, my stomach turn upside down. Yeah, these are tough conversations. But hey, it's happening. We can't protect our kids from things happening in their schools. Just as we've talked to kids about the reality of school shootings, God forbid, and other things, and we must keep, we must protect them just as much as we must have more guards to protect them from this violence. We must protect them from the ideas that could sway them away from the, the, the uh, exceptionalism of Americanism and universal human rights and freedom and free speech. So it's so important to have this conversation. Take a look. Check out the web and see what's happening in France, Austria, Germany. And sure enough... As much as we made progress, nary a 
terrorist attack in America in the last four years because strength speaks to peace and we get peace through strength as Reagan did. Think what you will about President Trump, but when it came to clarity on where America stands, we were pretty clear on what we did and what we didn't want to do. I might have disagreed with him on some of the sort of the quasi-isolationism, but he really didn't end up being much of an isolationist per se. He was a non-interventionist. Might have done some things a little different, but now we're going to see sort of at play the Obama-Biden part two. And we're going to see, I think, a ratcheting back up of some of the threats globally and through our societies. And yes, we're going to start to have these conversations. They're having them in Europe because their governments are starting to deal with it as Macron is or others are in denial as Germany and others might be in Turkey is ratcheting up the verbiage and the propaganda also as we need to begin to look at whether they belong in NATO, which I've been begging for. Many of us have been begging to be addressed and now certainly will not be under a Biden administration. All right, folks, hang in there. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, or at Reform This Radio. And also share this podcast with your friends and your family and others. God bless, and we'll talk next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.